Ciao, gentlemen. Fresh from Italy since 1948, Pro Rosso is Italy's number one shave brand and trusted around the world. With four different formulas for every type of skin and beard, including their classic Refresh formula with eucalyptus and menthol. It's the brand that four generations have trusted to shave. Take the quiz to find your formula at prorosso-usa.com. Hey everybody, it's Sal Bono, host and creator of Curva Mundial. As a longtime user of Pro Rosso products, I can actually say I enjoy shaving and I feel like I can shave like a pro in my own home. Plus, their beard products are so good that I look forward to growing a beard each winter to try their special fresh Italian formulas. Corva Mundial listeners in the U.S., now is your chance to have a classic Italian take on modern shaving with a discount on products this holiday season at prorosso-usa.com. American listeners, please use code CURVAMUNDIAL20 for a special discount at prorosso-usa.com. Valid now through December 31st, 2023. American listeners can use code CURVAMUNDIAL20 at prorosso-usa.com. The offer is valid one per customer. Welcome to Curva Mundial. Hello, and welcome to the season six finale of Curva Mundial. I am your host, Sal Bono, and my next guest is someone who is known for his bombastic personality as much as he is for his beautiful bow ties. A brilliant tactician of the game who has been seen on BN and CBS Sports and will now be played by Michael Fassbender in Taika Waititi's upcoming film, Next Goal Wins. Please welcome to the show, Thomas Rongan. Hello, Thomas. How are you? I'm doing fine, Sal. Thanks for, for having me. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's not every day or every episode where I get to have actual footballing royalty on this show, but you're a true regal diplomat of the game. So thank you for being here. We have a lot to unpack. You've led a fascinating life, even before a documentary crew in Hollywood came calling for the movie rights of a chapter to it. You were born on Halloween in Amsterdam in 1956, and at 17, you started playing your playing career with Amsterdam, a football club. I hope I got Very good. Uh what was football like in the early 1970s as a young kid trying to make it? Well, I mean, obviously I started way earlier, but that was my first official club, so to speak. Uh, I played in a few neighborhood clubs. And as you know, Saul, you're from Italy, you know, where you're born and raised in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, the only game you play is, uh, is, is soccer, obviously. First street soccer, which was probably early 60s uh, when I turned four, five, six-year-old uh, through when I was 12 or 13, very prevalent. That's where I picked up most of my skills, obviously, and, and, and street-wise playing, so to speak, in downtown Amsterdam. And Amsterdam was a very curious, great city, still is back then. Uh, we had a movement you know, where uh, everybody on white bikes, and I had a white bike, was anti-government in a very peaceful way, but that group included artists, uh, free thinkers, uh, architects, uh, you know, from all walks of life, and including a large section of the Ajax players that eventually brought total football, clockwork orange to the world with Ajax first and the Dutch national team in in 74 so i grew up in a in a real eccentric uh, think outside of the box kind of environment uh, which the dutch are known for we're small but we think big 
so that was a great, uh, you know, a great way for me to get acquainted with with the game and and be creative and 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 try to experiment as often as you could uh, on the streets and eventually on the fields of uh, Amsterdam's football club Ajax and eventually. At a very young age, I came to the United States when I was about 21 years old, uh, brought here by the iconic uh, Rinus Michels, uh, the founder really of, of, of Total Football, which eventually, um, with the extension of Johan Cruyff, uh, became world famous and is still uh, being played that way. If you look at Pep Guardiola, he credits Cruyff and, and, and Clockwork Orange um, throughout his coaching career. So... I was very fortunate to be able to be coached by, at that time, the best in the world. And people consider him in the last century to be the best coach ever. And to have a teammate in, in, in Jan Cruyff, that's maybe the most influential person in, in football, also in the last century, from a player to coach to management, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was very blessed to be, you know, born and raised in, in, in that city. Uh, where I actually obviously was the the team to follow, which I did as a as a child, uh, very religiously. Wow, you know, you were as you're speaking. All I keep thinking is one, holy cow! Like to be born at that time in that era in that place. But do you ever think about like the common denominator in everything that you were saying was revolution? whether it was social revolution or footballing revolution, you know, Amsterdam in that time, there was going through so much changes as a young person. Did you think that like, one, how could you keep up? But two, that you're in a very special place. Did you realize how special it was at that time? Yeah. Well, I, I don't think I realized it at that time because the majority of people in my surroundings, and I grew up in a, predominantly Jewish uh, neighborhood uh, next to the um, uh, the zoo in, in in Amsterdam, which is really in the middle of Amsterdam where, where, where everything happens, uh, be it the red light district, be it, uh, you know, the mere fact that we, we have a pretty tolerant uh, drug environment. Um, we had great musicians back then. We obviously were starting a, a, a revolution in the game in the late sixties. But at my young age, I, I didn't. I, I went with the flow, and I was part of that movement, uh, both on and off the field. And if I look back at it now, I, I clearly say that, that that shaped me. That that social movement uh, that became a, a football revolution as, as well. Um, in, 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 in all the great ways that we remember Dutch football and still are very fond of uh, Dutch football, the way it's being played right now, although we didn't have the, we don't have the success um, as we did in the late 60s, early 70s and mid 70s when we went to two consecutive World Cup finals that we lost against both host countries, Germany and, and, and Argentina. But that was a, 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 a beautiful time uh, to be in, in, in Amsterdam and to watch your heroes and then emulate your heroes on the street or or other fields in Amsterdam. Um, yeah, was 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 special. And and if I look back at my coaching philosophy, it, it all goes back to my childhood, the way I was raised, the way uh, coaches influenced me, uh, the way 
We're very democratic in our country, also in our coaching style. So we let players think with us, let players make decisions, um, succeed, but also fail at times. Um, but as I said again, be be creative. And 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 then the important part was, and I didn't realize that until I played with Cruyff and actually lived with the family in 1980 for about five months. Um, you know, Johan showed me drawings when he was in his late teens, early twenties, of the architecture in in the in the Netherlands. And there's a very interesting. I think I have it here somewhere. I don't know where it is now, but that doesn't matter. That our um, our houses or our apartment buildings on the canals in in the Netherlands or in Amsterdam, which is the Venice of the North, you know, Venice obviously in Italy. Um, and they're all all shaped triangular. The tops of every apartment is shaped triangular. And they're they're either small, they're very big. And Cruyff used architectural designs to influence that into into football. He said, "Thomas, look at those uh, the smaller ones. Those is one when when we you know when we don't have the ball, we make our triangle smaller. We compact certain things. But when we have the ball." Look at that house right there. That's a big triangle. We try to make those triangles as big as possible and stretch opponents vertically and horizontally. Yeah, this is Cruyff telling me in 1980 and showing me draw drawings of those houses and then segued into, you know, that's how we can apply that on the soccer field, which we did uh, with, with, with Renus Meagles. Uh, he showed me drawings before he even went to Barcelona um, how we wanted to build La Masia with Cruyff. I mean, he built La Masia with, you know, not only uh, great rooms where soccer education take place, but also um, areas uh, where he was, you know, he was talking about mental coaching in 1980 already, and and obviously further your education of the field as well. And and at the bottom, he wrote, Kleinstein um, is neat uh, muckler. There's we don't care what size basically doesn't matter because if if at that time the, the game was getting faster stronger bigger and the athletes reflected that as well and if it wasn't for Cruyff and Migos in that time the, the Iniestas the Tavis the Messi's probably would not even been able to get into La Masia because of Cruyff said that at age 10 11 12 13 I don't care about size. I, I, I want technical players. I want intelligent players. Oh. Soccer IQ. Soccer IQ is very important to him. How to how to solve problems. Quick thinkers. Uh, people that that that, that actually like uh, tight spaces and do something with it. You know, I, he goes, I embrace tight spaces. I said, Well, don't we want to have bigger spaces in order to operate in? He says, No, tight spaces. And if I if I correlate that with time and and time and space and put them together, we make the right decisions. We can really hurt opponents. You know, Th those were conversations that I had as a 22, 23 year old with Cruyff um, in in the United States that were incredibly uh, educated for for me, obviously. And and again, if you look at my coaching philosophy over the years as a coach, you know, those are things that I really took with me, obviously, and and it all comes from. You know, the Dutch being outside of the box thinkers, being creative thinkers, small country, think big. That was really the message throughout. Um, and, and that was pretty, uh, pretty cool, actually, to be part of that. Wow. 
you know, you both had come to America at a time when soccer was still technically in its infancy. The NASL was still looked at as a league that some people really embraced and loved. Uh, and thanks to Pele and the Cosmos, Beckenbauer and Canalia. But you decided to go to the West Coast, playing with the LA Aztecs, with Cruyff. What was that like for the both of you to come to a whole new world in America and see, go from a small country to this giant place with multiple time zones, different types of temperatures, and decide to be not only just diplomats and ambassadors, but show America what football can offer and do for you? Yeah, eventually we we became diplomats and ambassadors when we played in 1980 for the Washington Washington diplomats. (laughs) (laughs) But but just just real quick, in 1978, I played for the what's then called the amateur team, but the Dutch Olympic team. We played five games against the U.S. in San Diego, San Francisco, Kansas City, D.C., and New York. And we flew. I think it was a Spanish friend to Kansas City or Kansas City to New York. You know, you fly over. You know, the Grand Canyon, you fly over. And I, I remember the coach actually that time, just for that one trip was Renus Migos. And I ended up sitting next to him. And he went, I mean, that's the general. So I was shaking. I was, you know, I was at that time 20 years old. Um, and he said to me, Josh, how do you like this country? And we were both looking out at the Grand Canyon and go, wow. I said, coach, I'm in my last years of my studies and I'm going to backpack through the United States. I, I fell in love with this, 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 this country. And fast forward three months later, Thomas, this is Rios Migos. You remember when you and I, you know, flew over the Grand Canyon and you said you would love to backpack in the United States. I have one uh, spot available for a young, cheap uh, water carrier for Johan Cruyff, um, $1,000 a month. You got to share a car with a, uh, with a American and share an apartment. And I, you need to tell me if you, you know, going to come yes or no. And that saved some money, actually, because I was in my last month of my, my studies in my master's. Um, so I said yes, obviously, thinking this is going to be a great adventure. I mean, first and foremost, I'm going to play for a guy that I idolized. And then uh, five Dutch players, including Jan Cruyff, end up playing for the LAS Six as well in the West Coast. And... It was refreshing for them. Uh, there's about 10 years between me and the Beckenbauers, the Troys, the George Best. I came very young. They came, you know, in the later stages of their career. Most people were very brilliant at what they did. But what they found so brilliant and fascinating that they actually could walk through Hollywood with his family, which he wasn't able to do in Barcelona for so many years. Thomas, you said, well, I, I live like a prisoner and nobody recognizes me here. On the other hand, he was very keen and, and very eager to grow the game of soccer as well. Not all foreigners were that way. I mean, rest in peace, Gerd Mueller, but Gerd had no interest, for instance, in, in just was here to, to for a paycheck, whereas Cruyff was here for a paycheck as well. But, you know, eventually got onto television, television had, had, an, had an hour show a weekend and tried to really raise the bar for this game in this country, which was unique you know for a guy at his statue didn't have to do that but felt compelled uh, to do so so yes for him it was for me it was like you know a pinch every day pinch me i'm playing with croy from being coached by renus Migos. i was a holding midfielder i was a tough guy not very good but in those days two or three tough guys you need on your team and every week it was uh, uh thomas you're gonna mark george best thomas you're gonna mark uh 
uh, Trevor Friends is Thomas. Watch out. Carlos Roberto is going to make an overlap. You've got to stay with runners. So, again, to me, it was, oh, my God. I'm in a candy store and, right? and, yeah. and, like, and everything is free, you know, which was, which was an awesome experience. And then throughout the NESL, especially those three or four years from 78, 79 through 82, you know, 60,000 people in Seattle. You go to New York, uh, Rod Stewart is hanging out in the locker room because the English rock bands would schedule their tours around the Cosmos home game because they all lost football, you know? So the Stones, Elton John, all those guys would come, and particularly if Cruyff would play as well, you know, it was a benefit too. So it was it was just one of the coolest experiences in, in, in my life. I played for LA, I got traded to... The diplomats that team folded was owned by uh, uh, by Madison Square Garden, and uh, the the um, the family that owned um, Ver the Verblin family that owned the Jets as well. Mm -hmm. um, so after that, I got picked up by Fort Lauderdale. So I ended up playing with Gerd Mueller, and since my German is perfect, I became Gerd Mueller's roommate because he refused to talk uh, uh, English. <laughs> so here I am, going from Cruyff to Gerd Mueller to oh, you know some of the best of the world learning from them but also having a good time and you know playing in this country was obviously uh, brilliant regardless of all the throwbacks of artificial turf or whatever you might call it um to me it was just a wonderful experience and and such a wonderful experience that when the league folded most players went back to their birth countries I would say 10 or less than 10 percent stayed and I, I stayed I wanted to give back something to the game that has been so generous to me and to a country that's been so generous. So, you know, I, I started a, a soccer store at a lo soccer locker for like two years. I taught languages at Berlitz to get to get through. I became a DOC at a youth club. I was a high school coach for two years, eventually a college coach at Nova Southeastern. And then I became, uh, in the inaugural season of MLS, I became a, I became a head coach. So that's uh, a little bit... The story there of of the NESL and eventually moving as a coach into uh, into MLS. He's so humble because he didn't just become coach. He was just manager of the year in 1996 with the Tampa Bay Mutiny. Uh, it was the first, it was the inaugural year and it was a deserved accolade. Because I remember as a kid being really excited. I was about, um, I think, 11 or 12 at the time when MLS could come about. And I just remember watching Mutiny and, of course, the Metro Stars. Uh, and there was a sea change. It felt like as a young kid, especially after US 94 with the World Cup, there felt like a sea change in America that these cool teams with flashy jerseys and really fun names, this, right. this sport was going to be something different. Did the MLS for you at that time feel different than the NASL when you had played? Or was it just like, oh, this is just NASL 2.0? We obviously see now it's so successful, but back then in those early days, was it just a refurbishing of what was in the past? No, it, it, it felt different. And, and and by that time, I had also a keen awareness of, of you know, the business in, in, in soccer because as a coach, you end up talking to owners and presidents and uh, you knew uh, about single entity. You knew what these guys tried to achieve as well. Uh, you knew, and that was very much part of the talks in the months prior to the first game when we met with ownership and with the presidents and coaches of the respective teams. I remember sitting there with, with Ziggy Schmidt and with uh, Bruce Arena and, and Eddie Fermani and stuff like that. And 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 
the NASL was referenced, but a lot of times in a negative way because the owners said we have to learn from the downfall of the NASL, what happened, and not, not make the same mistake. So they were very keenly aware we don't need a, a New York Cosmos. We don't need somebody who's going to outspend everybody else, and then everybody's trying to catch up, and they all failed basically and, and, and went out of business. Uh, so their business model was totally different. Now we still had in that group, in particular with the Metro Stars, that Flugie uh, and somebody else that didn't know the game. And thank God for the Huns uh, and shoots, the crafts, and some of the coaches there that thought that a midget in goal would, you know, would would actually be great because the scores will be done ten nine, and that's what we need to see. You know, of make the goals bigger. And I'm so glad that in particular the Huns who've been in soccer for so many years, in the 50s or even 60s for that matter, just said, this is a game that has so much history and tradition. I don't think in the first year we can turn it into a circus mm -hmm. uh, just because we can think that we can bring people to the stadium. Uh, it's not sustainable. Um, now, the 35-yard line got in there, and I think that's still something that FIFA even should look at to decide games uh, in big tournaments, um, you know, maybe the 35 yard line, you know, the five seconds is a You're better right, way. Right. Oh, to, I, the penalty, yeah, that, that was yeah, so fun to, to finish instead of just straight penalties. So, we adopted some different rules that, that you know, took place. Uh, at one point in time, we had the 35 yard line, you know, where you couldn't be offside. And I remember sitting in a room with Gert Mueller because Gert was old and and and. You know, his body was giving in a little bit. And that saved him another season because he didn't have to come back all the way to the midfield line. He could just hang out at the 35-yard line because he was enough sides there. Uh, and that also didn't last very long. And, and correctly so, the game became so stretched. And, and yeah, more, you know, more time in midfield uh, to maybe, you know, create something. But, uh, again... I'm, I'm I'm glad they took that route. I'm glad from a business standpoint. I wish they would acknowledge the NASL a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Although I'm I'm very grateful for the fans, uh, allowing the fans to pick names of the teams. And you've seen, you know, historically, you know, from the Sounders to the Earthquakes to the Whitecaps, the list goes on, that some of these cities embraced the names of these old NASL teams and wanted to see that also in, in, uh, in MLS and more and more people starting to give M or N the NASL uh, more credit for what it's done and laid the foundation uh, for what the MLS is right now, uh, in particular from a playing standpoint. You know, the best players in the world. We had the message in Ronaldo's right. at that time, and I don't think that people <laughs> recognize that or acknowledge that or want to acknowledge that very often. Now that the league has been successful, you even see the done garbage of the world, uh, you know, talking about those days. Um, and eventually, of course, the 94 World Cup. And, and a lot of the guys that played in the 94 World Cup for the U.S. credit the NESL, you know. I talked to Alexi Lalas plays for me, Joe Max Moore, uh, Waldo. I was the assistant coach in 98. And all those guys, American guys, all credit the, the NESL for them falling in love with football because their parents or their dad took them to a, you know, a Cosmos game or, or an earthquake game or... You know uh, Jeff Agus in, in in Dallas to the uh, Dallas games. That's pretty cool, actually. That is great. You know, and you've coached all over this country. Uh, you reside in Florida now, um, and all of these illustrious leagues. Uh, I'm sorry, all these illustrious teams that you've coached and managed across America. But 
when you managed American Samoa, which is the subject of Taika Waititi's new film, Next Goal Wins, and also the 2014 documentary of the same name, how did that come about? Because you went from a club to now suddenly like a national team, but not just your regular run-of-the-mill national team. No, no. I mean, actually, the, the trailer depicted it quite well in a, in a very Taika Waititi way. <laughs> Uh, when they say you're fired, you know, I did get fired because we didn't qualify for the, I've gone to three other 20 World Cups as a head coach for the U.S. team. We didn't qualify uh, in Guatemala, played Guatemala in semifinals, lost. Um, and I still had some time left on my contract. So I said to Sunil, I said, listen, if you want me to do anything here, you know, I don't want to just take money, uh, no problem. So he called me, actually, he said, uh, you remember the conversation we had? You want to go to American Samoa? And, and I Looked at my wife and go, where's American Samoa? I should Google the shit. Oh, it's next to Fiji. So I went, yeah, okay, no problem. Because <laughs> the Dutch love to travel as well. Different cultures, different right. languages. You know, I speak my, I speak almost five languages fluently. Wow. Um, so, you know, that was the initial attraction. Then I did some research, worst team in the world, and, you know, all these things there. But, yeah, that's a real-life story of a, of, a, of a national team that follows their emotions, their learnings of a group of players to, to do their country proud and, and they can because they've not won a game in 20 years that lost 31 to nothing which is the worst ever defeat in a world cup qualifying history against australia um and then finally we managed to win a game against the tonga in in 2011 um, that was just a, a a a really cool ride for me professionally um and also Personally, because it's the first time I cried, uh, you know, my daughter had passed quite some years before that in a car uh, crash as a, as a so freshman. Um, so I I cried for the first time there. Uh, I cried for the first time. I've been to Notre Dame as a church, but I was raised as an atheist. Um, I'm spiritual, but not necessarily religious. But I went to church with uh, with the team because that's what they did in in Samoa on a very frequent basis. And that's where I sang with them. And that's where I cried actually uh, with them as well. So it's just a beautiful uh, journey, uh, both on and off the field, obviously, um, and which was really put well together by Mike Brett and Steve Jamison, the two young uh, English uh, uh, docu guys that were there even before I was there. And they were driven by the fact, why do these people come back when they get their heads handed to them each and every time, they're amateurs with a smile on their face. That was their initial. And when I came, you know, and we won finally, they go, oh, my God, we, we have a movie here that became, you know, a little bit of a cult soccer movie and did very well. Opened up the Tribeca Film Festival in, in 2014. It was 100% uh, uh, approval rating by Rotten Tomatoes, won some uh, awards. And that's actually, in 2014, I'm sitting next to The Rock, because uh, he was there to promote the movie because he's from American Samoa. And another guy comes up and goes, introduces himself and goes, I'm going to turn this into a real life movie. And it was so crazy that I didn't even, you know, didn't even register. Until years later, Taika Watita, Taika Watiti calls me and goes, you remember the conversation that I talked about the movie? Well, it's happening. I'm going to turn this into a real movie. And uh, um, he wanted his best friend because he's from New Zealand. Um, yeah. God, what's his name again? The, the probably the biggest actor the last 20 years that came from New Zealand. Um, 
God, what's his name? whatever. He mentioned his name, but he says he's a fat bastard, and I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to Michael Michael Fassbender play you, and, and here we are. Um, I can't refuel yet, but we're going to go to a few film festivals uh, before the official opening in November 17th with Fassbender, with Taiki Watiti, with Jaya. You know, the, the first transgender that I ever played. So, yeah, it's pretty cool to see uh, how this all. You know, I was all, all actually, I mean, let's be real honest. We all sat around with our buddies and talked about, you know, who should play me in a movie? Well, in my case, it's an Oscar, Golden Globe <laughs> nomination, Michael fucking Fastbender, you know? <laughs> it's like most people dream about like, oh, Brad Pitt, Denzel Washington, Idris Elba, and Michael Fassbender is always on that list. He's so amazing and handsome, and right. then here you are. You actually got it. It's like... I know. And, but, and, like, and again, one of the most acclaimed directors. It The documentary is beautiful. We're super excited for the film. But did you feel that in real life, though, this team needed a father figure, and you needed this team to heal from things other that were happening outside of you, that you both the squad and you needed each other that this was more than just a job yeah it, it was and and i yeah i didn't realize that believe me but it was really put into great words by by Tai Tai. you know he's from he's he has polynesian roots in him very much so he's from a tribe there and he's going back to he said i'm going back to my polynesian roots um, and this will be a, a heartbreaking comedy drama, he said, you know, and um, and also with, with some subjects that are dear to my heart that are very taboo, you know, transgender identity, um, sexual orientation, very much in play right now, you know, in, in, in the world, actually. Uh, racism to a certain extent, because yeah. Yeah. the second day, no, the first day I was there, I brought everybody in and I put out two... Uh, whiteboard with two different systems, a very simple 442 and a very simple 433. And I asked every player to come up and put their preferred position within uh, that system. And by the eighth player, here comes a beautiful woman, I think, you know, which is Jaya. And I go to my wife a little sarcastically, I go, she must be the massage therapist, you know, what's, uh, what's going on? And she goes, send her back, send her back. And I, look, I have all the passports in front of me, and it says Johnny. Salua, while the players referenced her as Jaya. So I walked on the field, our first session, they're all together, and I go straight to Jaya, and I go, what do you want me to call you, Johnny or Jaya? She says, coach, if you can call me Jaya, I would love you. And I said, you'll be Jaya going forward. And the whole team like embraced her a little bit, and I said, why is this so important? She said, all Palangi coaches, Palangi is white, all the white men that came before you, because that coach from New Zealand, Australia, from Germany, never accepted me. And you're the first that, first person that, that, that accepted me. So, you know, talking about race, talking about gender, talking about stuff like that. Um, yeah, that became very important, you know, and, and immediately I embraced their, their culture um, as best as I could. And yes, that was a very red threat throughout those weeks leading up to the first game, um, you know, which was uh, really a, a rare mix of of soccer and and you know identity, or, or they didn't have an identity as a team, and 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 they were perceived to be failures. I mean, 
One of the reasons why I brought back the goalkeeper that gave up 31 goals against, he had retired for years. And it was a huge gamble because I didn't know if he was able even physically to, to handle it. But I convinced him to come back and he became a rallying cry for the group as well. You know, and I, I knew that. So the team building process was very important. And I'm telling you, before the Tonga game, my last pregame talk, I said to my wife, I think they believe they can win this game. Wow. So I, I turned that in three weeks, you know, short amount of time around from a losing identity. And I remember the first conversation I had with, with uh, uh, the goalkeeper. Um, and I said to him, you know, what do you, he said, oh, no, you know, I, mean, I walked through it. And he lived in Seattle. He says, I walked through Seattle with my son, and people recognized me of, of, of not all, but some mm-hmm. that, that loved soccer, that I was the guy that gave him 31 goals. So my son thinks I'm a loser, and I don't want to go there anymore. And I said, well, I try to explain to him that you could maybe become a hero for your son, you know, if we do this right. So reluctantly agreed, and, and after the game, when we won, he comes over, he's crying, and he says, I just spoke to my son, and he thinks I'm a hero. You know, those are those are things that you you, you can't buy, you know. And, and yes, I won an MLS Cup with DC United, right. um, but this was so much more rewarding, both on and off the field, obviously, than, than anything else I've ever done. Yeah, it's uh, you just took the words out of my mouth. This is beyond any trophy, any other accolade is, is that – FIFA has this slogan, which I love, but is bullshit because they don't put it into actual action, which is football for all, soccer for all. And they don't put it into action at all, ever. And here we are in an era when, especially in America, where trans rights are under fire and trans athletes. And you were the first to make people feel accepted and make people feel that like, hey, you you are a player. You want to represent your country? Why not? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter how you identify. We're right. all one common goal. Why? Why do you think that this is such a difficult task uh, for so many people? And why? Do, why is it that like it's it's basic sandbox rules? In my opinion, when you're a kid, you learn how to you know be civil to each other in a sandbox, and yet it's not the case. Like what? Why? No, I mean, I mean, wow. Now we got to talk about history. You know, I mean, you know, right. you go to Southern. <laughs> You go to Southern Europe, you know, you go back to the Franco era, you go back to the Mussolini area in, in, in Italy where, where, where white uh, was, was the only thing. Uh, and so it's rooted in such a long socioeconomic, political, you know, we see it in Spain now. We know in Italy there's there's some huge problems too. Yep. You go behind the Iron, Iron Curtain, you know, Russia, they throw still bananas as well. And you go to this country, unfortunately, that's so polarized right now, and 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 let's face it, you know, the Trumps of the world, the Ron DeSantis of the world, who are not very nice people, um, and now they're forcing people to draw lines, and you know, there's still 80 million people I think that voted for Trump who are just categorically, regardless, I think, of what their upbringing is, will be against. You know all the things that you talked about. So I think in Europe, it's it's more the older school that still wells up a little bit through the years because we're a young country, actually. Um, I think we've seen underlying tones here for years about racism, of course, yeah, but not to the extent where women can't choose anymore uh, about 
about their own bodies. You know, the, 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 we're, in, we're in a very, very scary moment in this country. And then I look back at my own country where it's totally the opposite, um, where we don't have, you know, drug-related crimes, where we don't have many murders. Um, and there's there's reasons for that, obviously, you know, and... and um, Not many mass shootings and... Yeah, yeah, correct. <laughs> this country is beautiful in so many ways, you know, and but it's also very ugly uh, in so many ways. But so is the world nowadays, yeah. too. It's, you know, do you feel... Yeah, how do we solve, how do we solve it? You know, teams have to play in empty stadiums, maybe lose a lot of money, and then they might change. Uh, ban people for life. Here we can use artificial intelligence and easily... You know, can identify those those people, not just five or six, but if it's a few hundred, you know, you, you, you can never enter a stadium anymore. I mean, there's there's ways to do it, not just, as we say, with, with gun control, let's pray for the families and let's work only on mental health because that's really the reason why. Well, stop selling these fucking guns, you know, uh, uh, the same way with, yeah, it's it's, there's ways to do it, but... You know, you look at the first reaction of the Spanish FA president, right. you know, almost blaming, both of them almost blaming Vinny. And I'm going, really? Right. And a, and a guy that gambled once in the game gets like eight months uh, ban, you know, in England. I mean, we should, you're right. But, yeah, the powers to be, regardless of the fact that, that most of the FIFA guys uh, from 20 years ago are all in jail. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's still nothing has really changed from that from that from that standpoint. That's that's sad. But you've put all this into action, and do you feel that like you have done all you can, and you continue to do it, Thomas? Where you bend the moral arc just a little bit, and if we keep pushing it just a little bit, yeah, that things could get better. Do you feel that you've lived a life, and what you have done? And can be a blueprint or an example, especially just using just American Samoa. They may have never won a trophy, and that's okay. Yeah. But it's leading to the fact that, like, a kid now thinks his dad is a hero. There is a trans American Samoa that feels totally accepted. There are people that see people like you and I and our complexion that are just like, hey, I, they accept me and I'm accepting them. Like, this is a beautiful thing, like how harmonious life can actually be. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I didn't set out obviously to right. to make a difference from that standpoint, but I was thrown into the deep end, not just in American Samoa, but I think if you talk to most of my players that I coached, mm -hmm. uh, I'm 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 very open and and, and uh, democratic from that standpoint, as most Dutch people are. Um, I, I didn't mind even in MLS locker rooms talk about uh, uh, identity and and um, you know race uh, which is very much taboo obviously in, in particularly in male sports mm -hmm. um, and you have to you know and sexual identity and all those things you know and orientation uh, I handle it lightly uh, but respectfully and I think guys did get that or also women did get that so I think the they were always drawn towards me to be a uh, a a beacon of hope or a spokesperson for the good, actually, that, that still is in the world and the way it should be. Um, and, and 
Taika and I both have distinct distinctive brand of humors as well, you know. So right, I, right. I can't wait really how he how he's gonna weave all of that together in this in this movie and how Fassbender playing his first real comedy, because it's a right. bit of a comedy drama, how he's gonna do that as well and how I'm gonna get portrayed too, you know. So I mean the only thing I know out of the trailer, though I talk to Taika at least once every two or three weeks. He just called me out of nowhere. I reach out to him and he always gets back to me. And I have no idea where he's at. Most well, of the time. let he's him know that, fun. let him know he has an open invitation to come on this podcast. Yeah, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it'd be interesting because that, that, that the trailer shows Fassbender in this movie as an alcoholic. Which, right. That was a question. Which, I was I'm, which I'm, I'm not. So I didn't say anything to Taika about that when he said, what do you think, you know, the trails, oh, it's pretty cool and blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, uh, Elizabeth Moss, Moss is playing, you know, somebody on the committee that fires me and he knows that I've been divorced now from my wife. So I'm sure he put that in there and then she becomes in the movie again, my, 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 my wife as well. So he's got some, and you know, he, he always makes an appearance too. And this time it's priest. So it's, it's going to be pretty cool. And you got, you, you got, Reese Darby, you know, he's got two or three buddies that always make uh, make appearances. So it should be good. But um, he's got a lot of, he said, I feel very strong about um, about Polynesian actors to be in that. And yes, he's got Will Arnett, you know, Elizabeth Moth, Oscar Knightley, uh, but also uh, David Fane, um, 800 Words, uh, Bula Tsalawa from Hawaii Five O. Wow. Uh, a guy by the name of like Tukafi or something like that that, that was in Young Rock, uh, Angus Sampson, uh, the Lincoln lawyer, and then he has uh, Kaimana, who's who's an actress, uh, plays Jaya, and she's she's from the Fafafina community, which are the transgenders or third genders in the Polynesian culture. Very much accepted, by the way, there as well. So that'd be really cool to see. Awesome. We're all looking forward to it. It's you've lived a million lives. You know, when you look back on your life now, even as a pundit, you know, now it's like it, it's it. This is this sport has given you so much, but you've also given so much to it. Do you do you ever picture your life without football? Um, I, I, I don't want to be on the field anymore. And I've been asked that a few times by some clubs, both here and internationally, to come back and and. And do something on on the field, um, either in youth development because uh, they know I've got a teaching background, I've got a master's in physical education with an emphasis on on, on soccer. So I, I am a teacher. I love teaching, um, but no, I, I I enjoy my my life now to the fullest, which is still being very busy. You know, CBS <laughs> keeps me busy. BN keeps me busy. Uh, I do every Inter Miami game on radio. Which That's is right. Cool. Uh, and I work as a liaison uh, for the Dutch embassy as well. So I'm staying busy um, without the headaches of having to win or lose. And that will then determine your future, you know, if you get fired, yes or no. So that's a, <laughs> that's a fine line. Uh, you know, I, I ran into Bruce. Uh, Bruce Arena is a very good friend of mine uh, who played here against Inter Miami. And we have a coffee and going, how old are you? He goes, 72. I go, what drives you still? Because he, yeah, you know, he's done well. Yeah, and he goes, I still love it. I still think I can make a difference. I still love to be on the field. I, I, I couldn't because I couldn't separate field from home. 
Mm. And that's why I got divorced also, you know, I mean, uh, whereas Bruce has the ability to walk off the field and shut it up and, 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 and go from there. So uh, I couldn't do that. So I became a, a, it became just a hard, hard job where the wins were okay, but the losses hurt so much. Uh, no, it wasn't fun. You know, we tend to forget as fans that footballers and managers all have personal lives. And that you're also human beings too. So um, I thank you for everything you've done for this sport and continue to do for it. And um, it's, uh, we're not over yet. I got three more questions that I ask every guest. Mm -hmm. It's just, um, you know, just know that uh, so many people admire you and it was never for naught. Like it was, you know. Thank you. You're welcome. Now time for a coffee break. Curva Mundial is sponsored by Mod Cup Coffee in Jersey City. But you can get it anywhere in the world from ModCup.com. Mod Cup, drink modern coffee. Use code Mundial for 10% off your first order. So now we're into the fun part of the podcast. This is the this is the home stretch, as I call it. This is um <laughs> we're gonna it's three rapid fire questions. They generally pertain to a club, but since you are have managed so many places and so many players uh i'm gonna kind of tailor make it to your uh to your managerial career if you could bring back one retired player alive or dead that you could manage who would it be and why and what team would you manage them for well well i mean i i would say i would manage them for ajax that's my my club in amsterdam but if i have to pick Maybe four of the MLS teams. My most rewarding experience was probably, um, I mean, DC United. Not because I won a championship, but that that was just uh, it's such a good team that I inherited from Bruce. You know, uh, Eddie Paul, Carlos Yamosta, Jeff Agus, Richie Williams, John Hart, uh, rookie in, in Ben Olsen, Raul Diaz, Arce, uh, Moreno, Echeverry, and stuff like that. I would try, he's still alive. Uh, I would try to, I w- would love to coach Marco Echeverry again. And I know wow. it's not like the biggest name, but Marco was special. And Marco, due to an injury and due to some real serious stuff off the field, um, didn't max out his, his, his capabilities. And I felt, if I look back at it, that I, I, I didn't do a good enough job quite frankly, to get him to the level where he he could be and could sustain it for years to come. So I, I almost feel I failed Marco out of all the, you know, bigger names in, in MLS, you know, El Pibe, I, I wasn't able to reach out to, it was only one year, but we had an awesome team that kicked some ass and, and, and ran away with the supporter shield, uh, obviously. But I think I could have... If I would have reached out to Marco in a better way, and that time I, I was, you know, I, I wasn't able to to get my my blinders off enough to recognize that there was an area where, where now I look back, I could have helped him easily, where I think we could have won two or three more championships in a row. But I lost Marco, and, and the team lost Marco, and Marco was such an important player, although he still played, but he didn't play. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so that is something I would, if I could do it over again, um, I, I, I think he could have been a phenom and probably walk away with 
of Dilk this day. And some people might still consider that the best ever player in MLS. Um, I didn't get enough out of him. And that's, yeah, that, that drives me crazy because normally I get the most out of players uh, because I can I push the right buttons. I'm decent with X and O's, but I'm really good with people, uh, first and foremost. And, and I think in this business, in particular nowadays, the way the culture has shifted uh, from old school Bill Parcell that I hang out with when I work for the, the, the Kraft family, right. uh, now to a coach down here for uh, the Dolphins, that that says, hey, dude, uh, what's up, you know? And, and <laughs> that's the head coach of the Dolphins. Well, Don Shula would have, you know, I mean, so I, I, I the one thing I could always very good assimilate with the environment I was thrown into, um, understanding Boston is blue collar, you know, understanding LA, we got to be excited and stuff like that and, and make the teams uh, an extension of the, the city, the community, as I did with American Samoa, I tapped into their incredible resources as athletes that were not fit enough to play 90 minutes. So I, I tapped into that. They became even better athletes to sustain 90 minutes. And I'm within that technically and tactically in three weeks, you can do, you can do a lot. I, I, we were able to advance a little bit and then the mental side, which I think you can still make a huge difference nowadays, uh, mental coaching. Um, I did mental coaching already, you know, when I was uh, uh, in my early years of MLS when nobody even heard or talked about <laughs> mental coaches. And you look at MLS right now and every team has a, you know, uh, a mental coach, um, you know, so... I think I was way ahead of my time. And, and one of the reasons why is because I'm from Amsterdam. I'm Dutch. Uh, <laughs> you know, we all, we have, we've all smoked a spleef once in a while. So I can all relate to that. I hang out with, with, you know, I hang out with Bob Marley preseason one year in Jamaica. Oh my God. Whoa, great. whoa, whoa. Yeah. I didn't know that. Rewind the tape. I'm not done with this interview just yeah. yet. I got, a, I got a jacket after the performance from Prince in 1980, 81 in Minneapolis when, uh, I was a date of Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah, just a crazy story. So, I, let, I, so let's dive into them. I'm sorry. Correct. We're taking a detour, ladies and gentlemen. So um, I've had Bob Marley's grandson, Skip, on the show in the past. Um, mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, but what was it like hanging out with the man? That uh, was great. I mean, I was in, you know... I think two years later he died, uh, but he was not really bad. But his best, one of his best buddies was was Ellen Skillcall, and we played in '79 uh, the Jamaican national team, and we played a friendly in Montego Bay against a, a team from Mont Montego Bay. You know, first game of preseason, light opposition, and this guy comes out with dreads down to here, um, walks first out of this group where Marley and his posse he's hanging out at the sideline. We go, what? You know, now we're talking about going, we're talking about Cruyff and guys like that going, what, Bob Marley? Um, there is, you know, secondhand smoke. You're going like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm reliving my downtown Amsterdam time on, on, on mushrooms and hashies a little bit, you know, so it's all, all, all crazy stuff. Um, but Alan Steel Cole, if you, if you Google him, it's considered the best ever player out of Jamaica, but because he was a Rastafarian and and um, Marley's best friend, he smoked reefer every day. So he couldn't, he played three times with the Jamaican national team and every time he got caught, obviously, he refused to stop smoking. 
But this guy on the day, on a shit field, by the way, was not making people. It was like, and we're all going, what is this? Cruyff is going, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like this. So that's the skill call uh, story in 1980, where Joe Robbie moved the franchise from Fort Lauderdale to Minneapolis from one day to another in the NESL. We're all going, where the fuck is Minneapolis? <laughs> so we're ending up in Minneapolis. I'm living on, on Lake Calhoun and a few houses further on these movie trucks. I, Mary Tyler Moore doesn't tell or say me anything, but people in the neighborhood say, oh, yeah, it's the longest running show and blah, blah, blah. She's an icon or whatever. So I give her tickets to a game one time. And she one day she knocks on my door. She goes, you want to be you want to be my date? I go, well, I'm a little bit too young for you, Mary. But uh, she goes, no, no, not in that sense. But I want to introduce you. I want to go somewhere to see a female. She didn't mention anybody. So we're walking in First Avenue, this princess from from uh, yep. Minneapolis. Yeah. And it's. And it's Prince uh, playing. Um, and just, this is the I legendary think, First yellow, Avenue Club, right? Yeah, yeah. The yellow Corvette had just come out, but he was a little bit of a nobody still at that time. So we go backstage, and, you know, he's an introvert. He doesn't say much. And, you know, he introduces himself, blah, blah, blah. And Mary Tyler goes, what do you, I, first of all, I said, what a great set you guys played, you know, I mean, unbelievable. She goes, what do you, and wow, what a great jacket you're wearing. And he wore an oversized jacket, and he gave it to me. So I get a Prince jacket from a live performance that probably oh is worth, or probably worth a lot of money. But you know, I I saved George Best's life when his wife, who was that that time Miss World from Sweden, tried to kill him, and she stabbed him in his ass, and he was bleeding all over the place that nobody knows either. Or Studio Fifty Four with the Rolling Stones, you know, whatever. Uh so so George Best gets gets two assholes, um, uh, thanks to his wife, and then you go hang out with the and hanging out with the Stones at 54. Yeah, oh my god. Have you ever thought about <laughs> writing your own autobiography here? No, nah, people now it's interesting since this movie is coming out. I'm I'm doing a lot like this here, you know, and 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 there's people guys who would say, Hey, you should do this. There's there's a few companies that want to turn the curious tale of Thomas Rongen into like a documentary or a series leading up to the World Cup and have a podcast and talk about the George Best incident or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about it. On the other hand, I'm fine where I'm at. So it's, it's, we'll see. Yeah, there's, there's some interest. Wow. I, this is unbelievable. They, um, I don't even know where to begin. No. Also, is this how, just back to Bob Marley for a second, is this how the symbiotic relationship between Ajax and Bob had come together. No, I, no, I, I, I doubt it. I, I really doubt it. Although, you know, this was 1980. Um, uh, no, I, I think that probably happened later. You know, the three birds, yes. more his, yeah. his his siblings that got involved. He he loved the game. He played the game. Yeah. But he yeah. never got. Now his 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 daughter is sponsoring the Jamaican women's national team, oh. and so I think I think. They've all tried to reach out internationally to keep Marley's, you know, keep his spirit alive. And in the meantime, you know, we're all trying to make some money, I'm sure. So that's how I actually, it's a pretty cool, cool thing that they did, obviously. But I, I, I doubt it. Okay. Uh, I'm going back to my questions now. Thank you for the most incredible detour I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you could sign one player today, money is not an option. Who would it be one active player that you would love to manage and for what club? Uh, 
I always feel sorry for, for guys, but I still think if you look at his skill set and then you look at what he's gone through, uh, I would probably pick Paul Pogba. Okay. And, and manage him at Man United, where he supposedly failed. Um, try to get his head straight. And if you get his head straight, in the prime of his career, he's probably the, the most modern midfielder you can find. You know, I mean, midfielders are now, they have to be box to box. They're going to be able to win 50-50s. They're going to win aerial duels. Uh, they're going to be great passers, dribblers, which he is, his size and stuff like that. I, I just marvel that, again, coaches didn't get enough out of him. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking again at a guy that I can pick bigger names, you know, and, and say that's Mbappe, Haaland, uh, you know, that's, that's the one guy I want. But I, I, I pick again, just as I did with Echeverry, Pogba, because, again, he didn't maximize his career. I don't think the coaches maximized his career. And I think I'm one of those guys that can maximize troubled children's career better than anybody else. And I was always drawn towards, you know, those guys in the locker room as well. Uh, and, and nine out of 10 times I was able to succeed and, and, and make them better. Um, and again, I, I was drawn towards, you know, the, the bad boys, so to speak. Uh, I love it. That's fantastic. And finally, what has been your favorite moment as a fan of this game? Oh, God. My favorite moment was probably as a fan. And as a player, I was a fan as well. So there's probably two moments. I remember I picked up Jan Troy from the airport uh, three hours before his first game against Rochester. Um, he, was, he was done. He didn't look like, you know, but he wanted to play. And he scores an unbelievable goal. And then, you know, that's, that's, that's one of those waves. Um, but now as a fan, as much as I, I was rooting for the Netherlands, the run that Argentina had and Messi winning this World Cup, uh, knowing where he came from and knowing the Maradona-Messi kind of, you know, interfacing and, Stuff like that. It was pretty cool because I now firmly believe that he's the best ever. Um, and that winning Copa America and then the World Cup now, you know, that was pretty brilliant. And by the way, maybe the best final we've ever seen. I agree. And won by uh, Messi and a hat trick by a guy that's going to take over for Messi <laughs> and Haaland is going to take over for Ronaldo for many years to come. That all coming together and, and Argentina still able to win that final, even with Mbappe's brilliance at his age. And that was that was that was that was a cool moment. I love it. Thomas Rungan, this has been one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. So thank you so very much. Uh I cannot thank you enough for giving me your time and your story. And please come back anytime. <laughs> You're welcome, Sal. Follow us on Twitter at Curva Mundial Pod and subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.